You're listening to The Cutting Edge, presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. Hi, I'm Petra Hilleberg, President and CEO of Hilleberg the Tentmaker. My dad, Bo Hilleberg, a lifelong outdoorsman, founded Hilleberg 50 years ago, and we've been family-owned, family-operated, and European-made ever since. We proudly specialize in building strong, lightweight tents and in never compromising on quality of materials or construction. Our tents have been specifically chosen by polar expeditions, mountaineers, backpackers, and avid outdoor adventurers just like you all over the world. We build tents for everyone's adventure. Additional support is provided by Gnarly Nutrition, fueling, educating, and inspiring athletes at all levels. And by Loa Boots, crafting premium footwear for the mountains and beyond since 1923. And Polar Tech, bringing you the science of fabric. Hello, this is Dougal McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal, the AAHA. Pumari Shish East is a peak approaching 7,000 meters high in the Hispar region of the Karakoram. The mountain has been the goal of at least half a dozen expeditions since 2007, when Americans Steve Sue and Pete Takeda made the first known attempt. But a combination of factors, technical difficulty, dangerous snow conditions, and a highly unfavorable microclimate in this particular group of mountains had halted every attempt, until this year. On June 29th, the trio of Christophe Augier, Jerome Sullivan, and Victor Sosed reached the summit of Pumari Shish East after an extremely demanding climb of the south face. Their route, the Crystal Ship, gained about 1,500 meters with cruxes of M7 and 6B, or Hard 510, at around 6,500 meters. I spoke with Christophe and Jerome less than a month after they got home to Europe. Jerome was raised in the U.S. but now lives in Chamonix. He is a frequent contributor to the AHA. He's done first ascents in Patagonia, Alaska, Greenland, Pakistan, as well as the Alps. Christoph is not only a mountain guide, but also a PhD candidate in glaciology, working in Zurich, Switzerland. Given their backgrounds, I also asked them about the impact of ever-rising temperatures on the mountains of the Alps, the Karakoram, and beyond, what the science is telling them, and what they're seeing with their own eyes. We covered a lot of ground, so let's get started. So, Jerome, you're American and French, right? Yeah, that's right. Where were you, where were you born? I, so I was born in L.A., and then I moved to New Hampshire until I was 10, and then my parents got divorced, and I went back to France with my mom in Bordeaux, so in the southwest ah. of France. So your, your mom was French? Yeah, my mom's French. And then I just did a lot of back and forth for a long time in the ah. States. Did a few years in the States, a few years here, and uh, eventually settled in, in Cham. <laughs> right yeah. and I, and you and you work as a guide so i work as a guide here yeah between chamonix and uh Brionçon, which is a little mm-hmm. bit more south and christophe where what is your background are you are you french as well i'm french i'm french uh 100 <laughs> uh yeah. i was born in the Alps in Annecy. Uh, i'm 30 years old and i'm a mountain guy but i also i'm mostly working as a phd student at the moment in zurich mm-hmm. in, in glaciology in, in zurich you said yeah. And, uh, right. Yeah. 
how far along are you? When when will you be a a doctor of glaciology? Uh, officially, three years is what they say. <laughs> it looks like an endless. <laughs> yeah, three years. So I, I've just studied the PhD a year ago, and it's four years usually here in Switzerland. Hmm. So, but I, I'm I've been working on the lab uh, as a glaciologist, let's say, for three years now. So I just started the PhD, but I was already in Zurich for three years. Ah, okay. And as an American, Jerome, you you qualified to apply for the American Alpine Club's Cutting Edge Grant, which helped make this expedition possible. Um, are there similar grants in Europe, or is this one of the bigger ones that's available around the world? It's definitely one of the bigger ones. Uh, I've I've actually had some European grants, and they're just usually a lot less consequent. So yeah, it was really nice. And I think that this expedition would have had a very hard time to go without that grant. Uh, mm. The the porters in Hispar are very expensive, which is good for them. But for us, it was it was quite costly. <laughs> and uh, it was also a three day negotiation on departure in Hispar. So wow. that was Quite a, quite something. Uh, we got there really motivated. We wanted to, you know, go to base camp quickly and acclimatize, as you know, most expeditions want want to do. And um, a bit long to to negotiate. And we we had the info from uh, the previous expeditions that it was always complicated in this village, and and it was, yeah. So it's uh, there's a lot of shouting between them and a lot of. Act- bustling around and you don't really know what's going on because it's all in, in Urdu. So we're just spectators and uh, it lasted three days until eventually we said, look, guys, we're really happy to be here and we would love to go with you to Pumarishish Base Camp. But if it's not working out, we'll do something else. And I think maybe 10 minutes later, they were taking the backpacks on and on the way to, to the base camp. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and you were a party of three, right? Who was your who was the third? It's Victor. Yeah, the third one is not here, but he's uh, also a mountain guide from the Pyrenees. Mm. It's Victor. He's like my oh, he's a little younger than me actually. And is is he French as well, the uh, Victor? Yeah, he's French. Um so Pumari Shish East. Uh do you know what Pumari Shish means? Shish means summit for sure, like ah. peak. Uh, but Pumari, I think they were not able to tell us what does it mean. Uh, yeah, we, because we asked for sure, and I think we didn't get any answer. So that was a bit frustrating. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about the mountain, where it is located, and and why this objective was attractive to you. So Pumashish is uh, located off of the Hispar Glacier. Uh, it's quite close to Kunyangshish, which was a uh, um, which is a huge mountain. Kunyangshish East was uh, ascended a few years ago, I don't, maybe three, four, five, by uh, Hanshorg Hour and Antamaten. And that that was a really cool climb. Got my attention, at least, for sure. And Pumarishish is located right behind. The main attract for that mountain was that, it, well, it was, it was unclimbed and it was very steep. So I think we're all attracted by mountains that don't present uh, an easy way to get to the summit. I mean, it makes makes a nice challenge, right? So 
that that was really what what attracted me at least in the first place was to 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 find something that was also maybe high but not too high so that you could do some technical climbing at least we could um do technical climbing and uh and you know still at a cool altitude which was almost 7000 6850 out we're not really sure about the altitude um so that that was the yeah what attracted us and we actually wanted to go last year and some other friends were going Mathieu Minadier and Tom Livingstone and so we said well let's just find another objective and we mm-hmm. went to K13 Denson Peak which was also very cool and said well if they don't make the summit we'll go next year and well it happened yeah they got quite close right I mean, uh... yeah uh i think it was i mean it was a great attempt uh it was that still quite far because the ridge the ridge to get to the summit is quite complicated from the side mm-hmm. that they went so they were close to uh maybe a, a smaller summit on the east side there were a few pitches from there and then i think the the ridge i don't know how how doable it is it looked really complicated from the summit to get there but maybe not mm. these are very talented alpinists so they probably could have made it but they got bad weather i think on day two by my count there have been i don't know roughly six expeditions to the hispar specifically with this objective in mind and there have been several attempts like the one we were just talking about that got that got high on the mountain but they're all shut down for various reasons did you sort of study that history and sort of think about your own strategy and what you might do differently than the those attempts or do you just sort of hope for good weather and go for it (laughs) a mix of the two (laughs) yeah i think we we studied a bit the the um, like the time whether the when the people were going in the mountains like it was june july we're thinking to maybe go a bit earlier because they had issue with the warmth like with the warm weather so i think that that helped us to decide to to go earlier in the season rather going to may in may getting acclimatized and then um uh, attempting the mountain in june i think that was a bit different from the other expeditions mm-hmm. but but we didn't have we have a lot of we had uh, pictures from Mathieu uh, and Tom but we didn't have so many pictures i would say from other expeditions or, or none actually not not differently from the websites or from the the report you can see on the web so at least we knew where the base camp was, but we were not sure about the line uh, <laughs> before going there, you know. Did you uh, have the specific route in mind uh, when you study the mountain from, from home, or did you choose the line when you got to the mountains? Picking the line was actually a complicated thing because we had we had something in mind, and it was quite close to where we climbed. There's three prominent pillars on the on the mountain on the south face, and we were aiming for the right side of the left pillar, uh, which seemed to have the best looking line and the line of weakness, I would say, uh, because there's a lot of uh, seracs on the sides that that you know kind of uh, make the easiest possible line unaccessible, at least too dangerous. And when we got there. The first thing we did, we had a good camera. We went to the foot of the climb and we took some photos. And when we got back, we zoomed in and we saw these huge, huge mushrooms at the top. Really scary, overhanging. We called one the turtle and it was literally maybe <laughs> 50 meters of, you know, overhang. It was insane, like Cerro Torre mushrooms, you know. 
and uh and so during the long wait at uh at base camp we had many discussions <laughs> and uh we actually thought at one point that we wouldn't find a safe line to climb i mean as the good weather would come in we knew that the temperatures would rise a lot and uh and these mushrooms were pretty scary so in the end the line we picked wasn't the easiest but it was the safest what we felt was the safest so definitely one of the steeper lines yeah, I read a, a really nice quote from you, Jerome, on, on a report that you wrote about it saying, we figured though, that we'd rather be forced to turn around because the climbing was too hard than because the mountain was falling apart on us. We had a few a few sleepless nights at base camp thinking about, you know, <laughs> was it worth it to, to climb a line that's exposed to big mushrooms? And, you know, when you've crossed the world and, and spent a lot of energy and and dreamt a lot about climbing this line it's really hard to turn around at base camp right i mean we all really wanted to at least try the climb but we you know it felt too risky to climb on these lines so yeah our our choice was was to take the risk to turn around because we couldn't climb because it was too hard uh rather than than be under objective risks like falling mushrooms you know it just just felt too too scary yeah, and then you can you can prepare these uh, upstream like uh, before at base camp because you w- once you're in the mountain you're you're you know that you will be a bit biased by the dream or the weight uh, before so it's I guess it makes sense to choose this strategy at base camp and choose the line before and not saying well we will improvise uh, where the safest line uh, once on on the bottom of the wall so at least from the very beginning we knew that the line will be at least at least safe especially on the first part so where we were expected to bail. (laughs) (laughs) Did they have, uh, did this line have a lot of mushrooms overhead or was it uh, pretty free of of overhead hazard because it was so steep? It was definitely pretty free, uh, at least on the first part. But then it's it's slightly, well, there's a few bumps, but maybe there's one mushroom at the end, but we knew that it will be, it it, it was there for a while actually because we have seen picture of it. And it's it's pretty big, and but it it was uh, holding for decades. So this one was not about to to fall this exact day, uh, we guess. But uh, the 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 first part was definitely mushroom free. Let's say the first part was was so the first part was the snow slope, which we we decided to climb by night uh, because that that could be exposed, and then the actual steep pillar, maybe six hundred meters, seven hundred was 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 very steep and safe and then we went a little bit left to get to the shoulder and then we were under the the turtle the famous turtle <laughs> and <laughs> that that was scary because that was uh that was kind of a plan b i mean we got to the steepest part which is maybe four or five pitches to get to the shoulder and we had thought to go straight but that was just too steep with a lot of not uh big mushrooms that could fall and, and actually hurt you, but would have taken forever to, to clean these mushrooms and go through. So we had to go left. We did a big traverse and we climbed under the turtle. And it was that was a cool part of the climb. We put the rock shoes on and did a few pitches with the rock shoes. And that was under the turtle. But as Christophe was said, we, we had seen old photos maybe 10 years ago and, and the turtle was still there. So... Mm. <laughs> So it was reassuring. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, it seems like one of the the big issues in this area, Kumari Shish in general, is um, the weather. I mean, it just seems like, for whatever reason, it seems to have worse weather than a lot of parts of the Karakoram. Uh, is that true? And, and do you have any idea why it would be worse than other places? Yeah, actually, who told us that, Jerome? I forgot. Maybe the photographer that we met? Well, there were some locals that, that told us that there is actually a barrier of, of big mountains, Pumari uh, Shish uh, and also Punyan Shish included, uh, that kind of block the, 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 the streams, the, the, the atmospheric streams, the weather, basically, which means that there, uh, the weather is bad because the clouds are kind of stuck in the mountains, but at least there is no wind. So that was interesting, actually, because it's true that we almost, we, we didn't see any wind, actually, for almost a month. Slight, like slight breeze, but no high winds like you can see uh, that you can have other in other parts of Himalayas or in Patagonia. And actually, because there is no winds, there is also no way to evacuate the clouds. So that's why the bad weather uh, kind of stuck, I think, in this Pumarishish uh, um, cirque. I'm not sure how to say amphitheater. So I, I think there is there is definitely a physical reason why the weather is, is so bad. Huh. So it's a sort of a a paradox. You have nice. Yeah, little a little bit low end, but must have massive snow accumulation. Though. Absolutely. Yeah. Hmm. How long did you spend in base camp before you were able to climb? I think three weeks, something like something around three weeks. Yeah, a bit more. more. Twenty wow. six. I'm not sure. We spent thirty six, thirty five days at base camp, and the climb was seven days round trip. So a bit more than three. I think something, uh, Christophe, you said that was interesting was that uh, now there's so much agriculture in the Chinese plains uh, on the on the other side of the Karakoram that uh, that they have you know a lot of water condensation rising with the heat and that that water precipitates on these parts of Karakoram, which is maybe also an explanation why there's so much. Uh, precipitation and why the, the it's one of the only places in the world where the glaciers keep growing yeah it's fascinating to see how humans change the climate but also in that way you know like there is more in the last century there is because of china agriculture growing up there was more more humidity more more moisture in the air wow. and it was bad for us <laughs> yeah <laughs> But you had a good you had good weather for your actual climb, is that correct? Yeah, at the end we had like more than a week of good weather, uh, so it was very exceptional. Like Cal, our forecaster, said that it was really exceptional for, especially for this part of Karakoram. So we had the two, right? We had the two extremes: the really bad weather and the really good at the end. So, did this uh, specific line that you ended up climbing had that had that line been attempted before? I I don't know. I have no idea because. Uh... I mean, of the expeditions I've had contact with, I, I don't think it had been attempted. At least we found no trace. I know Rafael attempted, and, and, but I don't, I'm not sure what, which line he, climbed, he tried to climb. So uh, I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah, it's, it struck me that I, I couldn't find the lines from the past attempts either. And it's, I think when we go to do the story in the in the AIJ, we'll we'll try to do a history. We'll try to get the pry those past attempt lines out of people and publish them. <laughs> yeah, of course. We we should have done the work before, but <laughs> I know we should have done it before for you. <laughs> exactly. 
From what I've understood, I think Raphael was the the only one out of all the teams, Raphael and, and Mathieu and Tom, that actually set foot on the mountain. No, I think uh, one of the very first, uh, Steve Sue and, and Pete Takeda got quite high. Oh, they uh, did? They okay. spent oh, four or five days climbing. Oh, really? Uh, I, did, I didn't even know that. Yeah. I, I would be super curious to see the line. They have chosen. Well, we will. We will do. It was on the very far left, I think. They, they described it as the South Ridge. Oh, maybe the South Ridge. Okay, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 We we decided to not go there because we were too afraid of the really bad, annoying conditions of the snow. Because snow in Karakoram is well known to be really deep. Uh, you know, we did this um, like pretty inconsistent, really, really bad to climb, basically. So we decided to go on the face itself. Mm. Okay. But there is definitely a safe line on the South Ridge, yes. So, yeah, you described uh, the basic structure of the route. You have the huge snowfield um, and then uh, and then this pillar. How, how high was the snowfield and were you able to sort of move together on that or is this something you have to belay or how, how did you climb that? Yeah, so the, 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 the snowfield, we were kind of hoping to... Uh, build anchors and, and climb pitches just in case some stuff fell from above. And it ended up, we ended up simo climbing a lot of it because we just couldn't find any, any ice. So it was also a little bit complicated on the descent, but mm-hmm. we simo climbed, I would say yeah, at least 60% of the snowfield, And, and we got to the base of the pillar a little bit later than we wanted around 10 ish and 10 in the morning yeah and stuff was already starting to fall small stuff but we're a little bit worried so we we kind of built a little niche and uh and kind of waited there until maybe three in the afternoon and and then fixed a few pitches and slept there what time did you start climbing up i mean i suppose you were the the snowfield starts above the base of the mountain but what time did you start climbing on that first evening we woke up at 11. Oh, we woke up. <laughs> we decided to, to eat and, and lunch at Brent's <laughs> base camp at, at 11 uh, p.m. the day before. So I, I guess we started climbing at midnight, 1, 1, 1 a.m. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. It was a very short uh, distance to get the the, the start of the climb. So just one hour high. And then the pillar. So, how, and you, you said it was, how high did you say that the rock pillar itself was? We have to calculate. <laughs> so, I guess, yeah, Jerome, you, you're the one yeah, who has well, the numbers in mind. Well, the whole face we said was 1,600. The top part was 250. Lower part was 600. Six, so that's, yeah, probably maybe 850 meters. Right. Yeah. And how long did it take to climb from the top of the snowfield to the shoulder then? Three days. Two BV, three days. Three days, so two or 300 meters a day, so. That's not very much. <laughs> no, it's not very much. <laughs> on a big mountain. <laughs> uh, we didn't break any speed record on that. <laughs> well, tell us about it. So what, what was it like? Um, it looked like the rock was quite good, for one thing, in the pictures. Um, what, what, was, what was involved with the climbing? And was it, was it more difficult than you expected? Or did you sort of find some nice surprises or? A little both. Oh, bad surprises, I would say. Rather, yeah, it was. It was, the rock was great. It was. Um, it was really solid, and and the cracks were good. So usually we could put in good pro. The the difficult part was the the amount of snow that was uh, 
plastered on the rock in the most crazy places. I mean, every <laughs> small mini ledge had a mushroom and every overhang had a mushroom stuck underneath it, you know, gravity defying. And uh, so it took a lot of cleaning. So usually the pitches were you would start climbing, you know, free climbing with the tools and you would do a couple meters and try to put in a cam clip in, start cleaning and clean a little bit and then go again. And it was really all the time mixing between, you know, a little bit of aid, a little bit of free climbing. And yeah, it, w it was very steep. I mean, it was always pretty much vertical with some overhang. So wow. all the pitches were, were quite demanding. And our technique was to do two pitches each and then we would switch around. When we finished the two pitches, we were exhausted. I mean, <laughs> were you uh, were you seconding or following the pitches or or, or jumaring or we were jugging? Yeah, jumaring the pitches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, at, at base camp for a long time, uh, Victor was quite sick, and so we had uh, you know with Christophe, we thought, okay, well, maybe we'll give it a try, just the two of us. And quite miraculously, he ended up feeling better and. I think if it had been just me and Christophe, we wouldn't we wouldn't have made it because every time you know yeah yeah because you were happy if if I let's say I climb two pitches and I, and I'm done and you will have climbed another two pitches we definitely needed a third one to climb another two pitches because you you don't want to take over the lead you know uh, so basically you know it was yeah six pitches a day uh, I mean we were taking the lead only once a day or maybe twice. I wouldn't say it was a, a technique that we uh, thought about it before. We we never said, "Oh, we'll do two pitches each." We just figure out that we we weren't able to to climb more than two or three pitches uh, each a day. So that's that was a natural like natural strategy <laughs> once on the wall. It looks like there were some absolutely in the photos. It looks like there's some absolutely classic mixed climbing um, on on the on the route. I mean, are you able to enjoy? these pitches or as you say is it just so exhausting that you just all you want to do is get up <laughs> yeah some of the pitches were really amazing usually after we had cleaned them we would we would say wow if that pitch had been clean that would have been the most amazing pitch <laughs> <laughs> but where's your marrying <laughs> yeah but it took a lot a lot of cleaning i mean there was there was a lot of mushrooms and and after a bit we kind of got understood the mushrooms some of them were just compact snow and if you kind of hit them then the whole mushroom would fall on you in a big block and it was kind of scary and some of them were soft snow and you could just dig through it slowly so kind of got the hang of that after a little bit yeah speaking for myself i wouldn't say i enjoyed really like a lot of the beaches uh, that i led not, not as in the apps like a new track classic in the apps you're light you know you're you know uh, sleeping in a nice place in the evening and you really enjoy the climb. But I think, I, I, at least for me, I felt a bit more focused and uh, exhausted after each pitch. So <laughs> not that uh, enjoyable, at least not as the, the classic you can climb in other other places. I think I, I had one pitch that I, I, I was lucky to lead that I, 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 really, <laughs> I really enjoyed. It was crazy because it was one of the of the rock pitches where I had the rock shoes on, which were at the top and it was overhanging with, with jugs and it was wow. maybe six B. <laughs> and so just for fun, I would let go of the feet, you know, and just. <laughs> clap, Without clap. sending us. So we were freaked out. <laughs> like, wow, what's happening? <laughs> it was crazy. Yeah. It was, that, that was a very, very enjoyable pitch. 
And out of the other pitches, I, t- I took three liter falls, which is, you know, quite a, mm. I mean, I don't, I, I'd never fall usually leading in the mountains. I took one pitch, uh, one, one fall aiding and ripped out two pins. And then I took another fall leading mixed climbing. And that was fine. And then I, t- I broke a hold climbing with the climbing shoes and also took a good fall. <laughs> it was quite, uh, quite memorable. Yeah. <laughs> Did you all carry rock shoes for that um, stretch at the top, or did you have sort of a des- designated rope gun for the rock pitches? Yeah, me and Victor have the same same shoe size, so and ah, stuff okay. also. So we took w- one pair. How much bigger are those shoes than your? I mean, are you able to wear you know two pairs of socks, or what? What's what do you wear inside your shoes when climbing at that altitude? Uh, no, we, we actually the, the shoes fit. I mean, they were a little bit big, but not really big. So it was sockless. So proper rock climbing shoes. Huh? Proper rock climbing shoes. We had some special shoes, which have actually a kind of a neoprene gaiter in them. Hmm. And they have kind of a fleece lining inside. So they're pretty warm. So they were they were nice. And I've I've had these shoes for years, never used them and, and <laughs> said, okay, this might be the chance. Nice. They are they are actually pretty heavy, so um, I, I'm not sure, like uh, twice heavier than classic rock, rock climbing shoes. So mm-hmm. we were not sure until the end that we will take it. And even the, the first day or the second day of the ascent itself, we were fighting with all this snow and all these mushrooms. And we, we thought that we will, we will never wear the shoes. It's, it was a mistake <laughs> to put this in our backpack. So we should uh, clip it on the belay and, and take it back when, when we go down, you know. Because we only use it the, the fourth day of the ascent. So basically for only three pitches, not that much, but really mandatory for sure. And what altitude was that at the sort of top of the pillar where you're climbing overhanging 6B and cutting your feet? <laughs> uh, 6,500, uh, 6, I think about. Yeah, okay. Christoph, you mentioned having nice places to sleep in the Alps. What were the what were the bivouacs like on the on the pillar itself? Uh, they were the, really bad, <laughs> in my experience, the worst for sure. We had four BV. The last one was okay because it was on the shoulder, right, on the hanging glacier. So it was just digging snow to make a flat terrain. But the, the first one was an um, individual platform that we dug in the snow, mm-hmm. and it, it was okay because you can make something big enough for for your body. But with your home, we're on the gully that were collecting all the snow falling down because of the wind. So it makes a spin drift. And they were actually, they last all the night, actually. So not, not very big, not, not something that scares you, but just the noise on the sleeping bag, but also the fact that it goes in, uh, prevent us to sleep on the first night. Oh, we slept very little. The first baby was pretty bad. And the second one was just, uh, we found a, a ledge to sat, to sit down with, with Victor. And Jerome found a, I'm not sure how we can describe this, kind of mushroom <laughs> hanging on the rock by a miracle. And you just, uh, yeah, uh, lie, lie down there. So the second baby was really uh, ridiculous, kind of. And, uh, and no tent yet, right? So you're just... No, no. So we had the tent, but we couldn't pitch it for the first two baby for sure. Right. We were happy enough to have this, you know, ledge to sit, just sit down. Uh, and the third BB was on the ridge, like this kind of spine, you know, a really mm-hmm. narrow that we really have to dig in, uh, to, but we were able to pitch the tent. So we were really happy to pitch the tent just for the size of the tent. So quite exposed too. Wow. 
but at least we're able to pitch the tent and it's nice to, you know, go in and kind of forget about the, the void basically yeah. <laughs> or the ambience. <laughs> so it, was, it was nice. The third DV was nice. You you talked about, you know, when you're at base camp thinking you might fail low on the route, did you feel like, were there any times when you were on the pillar itself that you're just like, this is just not going to work? Or did it sort of just seem to be coming together as, as you went up? Every day. I mean, every evening, pretty much, we would say, okay, well, we'll see tomorrow, but this is probably not going to happen. I mean, we were we were struggling all the time. So, I mean, I don't know what you think, Christophe, but I, I really did not believe we would get to the summit until we actually got to the shoulder all the time. Yeah. And even the last day, when we decided, when we got up from our our nice little spine, uh, and we got up and, and we kind of looked up at our planned itinerary and we said wow that's not going to work out all right well let's try and cross over to the left and try this uh you know steep rock face and and that that morning i was pretty sure we would not make it so yeah it was the satisfaction was even bigger i would say you know you never know until the last moment yeah same for me um i think the first time i started to believe that we will we will make it maybe make it is the last BV on the shoulder. Uh, there was only uh, easy terrain above us, so maybe a, few, a couple of hours of climbing only. And we knew that we will make it, but just before the, 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 the four uh, days before this BV, uh, it was, I mean, we were uh, keep climbing because the weather was good, because no one said we will, you know, let, let's go down, guys. <laughs> so if no one says let's go down, guys, and if the weather is still good, we, we just, you know, do what we know like we, we let's climb another pitch and after this pitch there is maybe another pitch and we were always driven by the the fact that we'll be curious to see what's what's up what's next let's say you wake up with the, after this really bad bv where we sat down and if you see clouds with a bit of a bit of snow maybe it will have been a, an excuse to kind of go down you know does anybody sort of act as like the cheerleader to keep you, you know, <laughs> keep you going? Because I know it's really hard when you're sitting there in a hard bivouac and you're thinking about what's ahead and, and so easy to talk yourself out of things. I guess what I'm wondering is if each of you sort of make individual decisions that, oh, well, we might as well keep going. Or if you really, or if you talk about it as a group, or if there's somebody who's sort of the one leading the way and saying, oh, no, we should definitely keep going. I feel like uh, we just didn't talk about it at all because I think every one of us knew that if one of us kind of raised the question, guys, should we turn around? Then maybe the others would say, ah, oh, yeah, meh, that might be the good option. And everybody just kept quiet. <laughs> we just kept going. Yeah. <laughs> Which didn't mean uh, the ambiance was good between us, but we, I think it's a topic that we avoided. Yeah. Like we woke up in the morning and there is no other word. So, uh, like, the only thing we have to do is to climb, basically. But usually, Jérôme is known to be really optimistic and to push forward. Uh, I think you kept the... I wouldn't say there was a leader more, much more optimistic than the others. I think we all had a really good mindset. Victor, Victor uh, was our, our morning leader. He would uh, oh, yeah. make breakfast oh, for yeah. us in the morning when we were yeah. all, all you know, having a hard time to getting out of the you know, s sleep or sleeping bags. and. Victor would always be the first one to light the light the the stove and start making water and be motivated. That always helps. And so you reached the summit on the fifth day, right? Uh, mm. Was that sort of middle of the day? It was pretty early because yeah. it was uh, just uh, easy terrain. So I think we were on top at 10, 10 a.m. Great. Well, not that and, early. 
Had you always planned to descend the same route or was there any other alternative? Or? Yeah, we, we really searched for uh, an alternative because we, we, I mean, it's always nice when you get to the summit not to go back into the face and to find uh, a, a, <laughs> some, some route on the backside that kind of goes down, gentle snow slopes. Uh, but it was, uh, well, first of all, we had in, we had thought about some possible ways to get down, uh, which involved quite a bit of walking on on a big uh, glacier plateau that was on the on the north side. But all the all the descents seemed to be guarded by some really big seracs, and every time we tried to actually do the four or five hour walk to kind of see this descent and take some photos, uh, it there was always clouds. It was never mm-hmm. never good enough weather. So we ended up saying, oh, well, we'll just, we'll just wrap the route. So your the challenge, I guess, on the, on coming down the, your route was timing it. So you'd hit that snow field at the right time of the day. Is that correct? Yeah, ideally we wanted, and it's what we have done uh, to, to upsail down the snow field by night, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, 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 um, the fact that we reached the summit at 10 a.m. was perfect because we could uh, go down, make a, a little nap, you know, at the last camp. Because we have obviously left the, the tent and the, the stuff we, we didn't need for the, for the last uh, couple of uh, hundred meters for the top. Mm-hmm. And then we, yeah, we waited. The, the face was in the shade. Actually, it's a south face, but it only takes the sun from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. So not so sunny, actually, for a uh, south face. Uh, and so we started updating down in the afternoon. And I think we reached the top of the snowfield in at 6 p.m. or something like a, at, a, at the when the night was starting. So it was perfect. And were you able to abseil all the way down the snow field or there, are there, were there feed threads or how, how did you find anchors in that snow? Yeah, we did, we did uh, the start with V threads and it was pretty crazy because the snow field had totally transformed during the five days that we climbed. And when we got back to it, there was actually uh, rivers of water running on the snow field. So I, I felt uh, our, timing was you know also we had kind of the idea that there was a switch between uh you know spring and summer and that we didn't want to be there during the summer and i felt that it was the timing was really perfect like we kind of went slowly up the face as the 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 as the temperature was rising and and when we got down and you saw these rivers of water running down uh, we really felt that we, we'd been kind of lucky on that. So, yeah. And so a few V threads and then eventually no more V threads. And we just down climbed a good part of the mm-hmm. snow field. It was a little bit scary because, uh, you know, we were tired and, and obviously a little bit, uh, preoccupied by, you know, stuff that could fall from above, but it worked out. After a break, we'll hear what Christophe and Jerome are seeing in the mountains during the climate crisis. Spoiler, it ain't pretty. Born in Utah's Wasatch Mountains, Gnarly Nutrition is committed to fueling, educating, and inspiring athletes at all levels. Gnarly provides honest, effective, and great-tasting nutrition that is third-party tested. Gnarly's full line features science-backed products free of hormones, GMOs, proprietary blends, or anything artificial. Add Gnarly Nutrition to your training regime to help you send. Use code AAC20 for 20% off site-wide at gonarly.com. Loa Boots began as a village cobbler in Bavaria in 1923. Almost 100 years later, Loa is still based in that village 
and is still building boots and shoes in Europe under the world's most stringent environmental and labor standards. From mountaineering and ice climbing boots to rock climbing shoes, hiking boots, and lightweight trail shoes, Loa is recognized worldwide for the uncompromising quality, fit, and comfort that make Loa boots simply more. Harness, check. Chalk bag, check. Grid fleece, check. For over 30 years, climbers have checked their gear list to make sure they packed PolarTech. We love PolarTech fabrics for their lightweight warmth, quick drying performance, and ease of movement. Found in iconic apparel pieces of legendary outdoor players, PolarTech remains an essential piece of climbing equipment. Whether you wear your pullover or use it as a pillow, PolarTech helps bring a bit of comfort to the crag. If I'm remembering right, you summited right around the same time of the month of June that many of the past expeditions to this area were just arriving at base camp. So maybe a month earlier than than other people. In your judgment, I mean, you only have the experience of this one trip, but does that seem like a good plan for future trips to this area? Yeah, definitely. I mean, actually, I think our experience uh, last year on K-13 was very similar. And we had the same experience of being on the mountain and coming down and seeing the mountain totally transformed and the glacier at the bottom also totally transformed. And I mean, last year uh, on K-13, there were some, on K-2, sorry, there were some uh, wet snow avalanches very high on the on the mountain at, I think, six o'clock in the morning. And, and there were some accidents. And I think... Uh, Temperatures are are changing, global warming, and the mountain is is so different. I see we see it in Chamonix in the Alps. I mean, this year is is just catastrophe uh, in terms of in terms of rockfall and and very dry glaciers, and that's also happening in in the Karakoram. So I feel like it's pretty reasonable to say that expeditions should be climbing maybe a month or even two months before the they they would climb. You know, twenty years ago. I want to get into that in a little more depth, but also I, I'm curious, other teams have experimented in the Karakoram with climbing in September. Did you think about going in September to this area, uh, or did you think that the earlier start, or why did you think the earlier start made more sense? I think the earlier start made more sense in terms of having glaciers for the axis that are covered with snow and, and still have you know consequent snow bridges to get to the foot of the face. and. I, I I mean, yeah, the the Georgian teams did an amazing climb last year in September uh in the Hindu Hindu Raj. That was that was amazing and I, I I'm sure there will be many more in the future in September and, and it does make sense because the temperatures get cooler, uh, but also the faces are a lot a lot drier. So if it does involve mixed climbing, I think it's probably not such a good option. If it's more mm-hmm. rocky, then then for sure it's it's uh it's something very interesting. I don't know how it is, you know, in the Karakoram. I know here in the Alps in September, there there also is a huge amount of rockfall since uh, the heat takes a long time to get, get through the, the rock and kind of impact the layers of permafrost that are a little bit deeper. So, yeah, that is an issue here. I, I don't know how it would be in the Karakoram. I suppose kind of the same. Christoph, I think that some of your work, you mentioned you're a PhD candidate and your work is in glaciology and could you just describe your your work and that what you're researching and and how it relates to mountain hazards? Yeah, well, that's a, I'm working on nat- natural hazards linking linked to glaciers, but rather I'm interested on the on the interactions between the water and and the ice of the glacier. 
So especially for the floods that are triggered when a, you know, a lake that is dammed by a glacier breaks, or especially actually on the water that accumulates inside the glacier here in the Alps. So we know that there are a lot of what we call water pockets, like that are kind of subglacial lake. Mm-hmm. And, but we don't know where they are and we don't know when they will break eventually to and treat the population downstream. So that's my, that's my focus uh, of research. I see. Is it known if uh, a water pocket like that was responsible for the disaster on the Marmalada? It's known, yeah, it's known that it's not a water pocket, but it's definitely water uh, that triggered the, the, the sliding of the glacier detachment. And there is more water because there is yeah, more heat, basically, uh, on, on the glacier. So it was not really water accumulation, but rather the thermal regime of the glacier that is changing. It was, let's say, cold base. So, you know, when the ice is cold, it means below zero degree, the ice stick to the bedrock. And when it's, when it's increasing temperature and it, it hits zero degree, there is a mixture of water, like liquid water and ice. And, and then the glacier is sliding like all the other glaciers, most of the glaciers here in the Alps. So this change made the, the, the glacier detachment. Is it the general consensus in the scientific community that the effects of heat, rising heat in the mountains, like we've been talking about, are accelerating? I mean, it certainly seems to be the perception among climbers. Uh, is it is it a fact that these kind of changes are happening faster and faster? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And actually, it's interesting to see that in the mountains. Actually, there is two regions in the world where the warming is more important: the mountains, the high altitude regions, but also the high latitude regions like the Arctic, and that's called polar amplifications. And so, um, the the global warming is actually twice uh, higher, like twice faster in the mountains and in the Arctic. And that's why as a mountaineers, you see this global warming uh, much faster, or at least in a stronger way than just, let's say, uh, city, uh, people in the cities or close to the oceans. So yeah, there is an amplification of global warming in, with attitudes. And based on both your observations as climbers around the world and what you know of the science, are we? do you feel like we're just at the beginning of these changes in the mountains or that we're sort of well along in the the transformation. I mean, can we expect things to get much worse before they stabilize? Uh, yeah, for sure. I, I can only speak for the Alps because I think that's where I do the most uh, observations. But actually, in Patagonia, in Echatlan, you see more and more rock faults, also due to permafrost degradation. But I think it's uh, it's. I wouldn't say it's just starting because we see rock falls uh, because of permafrost degradation for a while, or a while, like a few maybe decades and centuries. But because global warming is increasing in the mountains, there will be more and more rock falls. Like the frequency is increasing as well. That, that's for sure. Actually, the, the, the temperature here in France since January is the, will be a normal weather or normal climate in 20 or 30 years. So what we are really experiencing in the Alps this uh, summer, it's normal year in 20, 30 years. So you can imagine the, the disaster it is for the mountains. Maybe for the people who, do, who don't know, who are listening, there is a, a heat waves, like a, a lot of heat waves here in the Alps. And, uh, yeah. and it changed a lot of the, the, the mountains. So in 30 years, this is the new normal. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and actually what we have, this kind of um, modeling that we do, we already, we already figure out that is we always, we had in the past underestimated the change. So maybe this is actually even an underestimation of the change uh, because, you know, scientists, they are pretty cautious. They, they give uncertainties and they don't want to fake, basically. 
So they always go in the safe zone and they give incidences. But what we have seen with the, with the melt of the glacier is that we were actually uh, on the higher range of the uncertainty. So we are rather following the catastrophic um, uh, scenario, actually. Obviously, the climate crisis has much greater implications for humanity and, and the world than, than the effects on climbing. But, you know, this is a climbing show. Um, <laughs> and based on your experiences, both of you, I wonder how you think climbers will need to adapt in, you know, even in the just say the next 10 years, but certainly in that sort of 30 year scenario. I mean, let, let, talk a little bit first about the Alps and and similar ranges and then and then the higher mountains of the world. I mean, you know, what can we expect and, and what will climbers do? Well, for sure, a lot of a lot of the climbs, uh, for example, ice climbing uh, is not going to happen anymore, um, at least in I know in, in France. The conditions regularly every year are are basically nothing like they used to be. A lot of the climbs aren't in conditions, and in the higher mountains, I think it's just the the, the time frame that changes. So we used to, you know, climb big mountains in July and August, and now we're climbing them in May and in June. Sometimes, sometimes not even June. And you know a lot of a lot of the climbs have uh, glacier access, and that's also quite complicated as uh, the glaciers are opening up and and the snow does not freeze anymore, so it gets quite dangerous to ac- even access the climbs. Christoph, do you have? Yeah, I think it's, it definitely shifts forward the the season of climbs, uh, as Jerome said. It will be, I think, the more you go in the summer, the more risk you take for these big rockfalls, but also the glaciers uh, states. So, and at some point, I, w- I think there will be, you know, you don't want, you don't want to climb classics. Uh, <laughs> you don't want to climb classics in, in winter. So I, I think the period of big climbs is just uh, reducing a lot, quite a lot. Hmm. Uh, that's for sure. And yeah, that's, that's at least for, for the apps. I'm not sure about the, the other mountain range, but yeah. Why, why, why would you not want to climb these in the winter, the classics? If I guess the definition of a classic is something that most of the alpinists will do, and I think a winter climb is something more uh, with more commitment and, and more serious. So, just for the, I'm talking about alpinism as a classic activity, like gu- guiding clients and, and so on. I think this period, where let's say beginners also will go in the mountain, will be will be shorter because because you don't want to climb in the winter if you're a beginner, but you also you don't want to climb it later in the summer. To reduce the risk, so the the the, the time of climbing is is just shorter. Yeah, yeah. but of course the, the the aim would be to climb it in in winter, but maybe not all people want to climb in winter. Rock climbs, I mean. I mean, I suppose if winter is you know ten degrees warmer, well, yeah. ten degrees warmer, <laughs> yeah. but you know if yeah. it'll be a different winter, won't it? Yeah, or, or maybe the techniques, you know, with the the, the dry tooling, uh, taking a big part in alpinism. This kind of if you master a new technique that is that uh, allows you to go for more difficult, steeper, and earlier in the season for, for doing your climb, maybe you can also overcome the, yeah, the climate change issue. You can already see, uh, I mean, every winter, a lot of winter ascents, which uh, the climbers, you know, talk about, like if it was a, an ascent in the spring. I mean, it has, it's, the temperatures are so different from what they were, uh, 20 years ago, if you climbed Gondroas in the winter, you would have negative 25 regularly during the day. I mean, now now you get you get you know 
negative 10, which is totally different, mm-hmm. radically different approach. Yeah, sure. yeah. Do you imagine a time in the Alps or in the Karakoram, other mountains where, you know, climbing mountains by technical routes will simply not be feasible anymore? Or will climbers always find a way? I mean, are we really just talking about the disappearance of the kind of classical alpinism with sort of one foot on rock, one foot on ice and, uh, you know, our big ice faces, you know, down the road, are we just going to be talking about big rock climbs in the Alps or will climbers still find a way? I mean, a climber by definition is attracted to a challenge, right? So I think they'll always find a way. I think the natures of the climb will change. I mean, mixed gullies are going to be more and more rare and ice is going to be more and more rare. So so obviously uh, dry tooling and, and in winter is going to become something bigger. But climbers, I think, will always find a way to climb big mountains anywhere. Maybe maybe par- paragliding to avoid upsetting, maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For, I agree with Jerome. I think there will be, well, first of all, Karakaram is less impacted by climate change in, in a sense that it's higher Glaciers are bigger. Uh, I think there is there will be more time before we have the same issues with the Alps, for example. But I, I'm sure there will be a new way of doing alpinism. Yeah. Uh, that's what we are already doing. We are not doing the same alpinism that 50 years ago. Right. Apart from, you know, the wider implications of the climate crisis, I mean, as climbers and, and especially you, you guys are both professional guides. I mean, does what's happening in the Alps just make you terribly sad or do you find kind of like jerome was saying that there that you can be intrigued by the new challenges that this is all creating i i think it's sad i mean it's, it's kind of hard to to be in uh living here working in the mountains every day and 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 seeing everything part fall apart i mean there's not one day i spend in chamonix where i i don't see some big rocks falling somewhere or hear a friend that says oh yeah this collapsed here so it's it is kind of sad to uh you know slowly see your your garden and your playground kind of disintegrating uh it's definitely going to take time to adapt and and i've seen this in the last five years i think it's gone really really fast because we've always been talking about it and it's always been something that we thought would happen but maybe not so much in our you know, career, life of work, and maybe thinking more about the future generations. But, but no, not at all. I mean, it's here this this year in the Alps. It's crazy. The guides aren't going to Matterhorn anymore. We're not going to uh, Mont Blanc. There's many, many routes that are just totally not possible to climb. So, mm. yeah, I, I I would feel I feel a little bit sad to see everything kind of falling apart. Yeah. I study glaciers because I like glaciers. So I'm pretty sad to know that in 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 uh, in 50 years there will be half of the glaciers uh, remaining. And if we keep uh, business as usual, in in at the end of the century there is no glaciers anymore in the Alps. That's it. But I, uh, it's not only being sad. It's just you know it, it gives you the the will to do yeah to, to to do something or maybe to 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 let the people know what what's happening. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's not only sadness. And you look around being sad. You want to do something. I guess. I mean, being sad is something, but we're all, you know, we're also impacting the, the, the climate with, with our activities. I mean, going to Karakoram is obviously not uh, something, you know, that's going in the sense of uh, helping change things. So it's, it's also a little bit uh, 
ambiguous there. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. Well, it is comforting, I guess, that you, you can still find great climbs like Pumarishish um, in, in a condition that is more or less enjoyable to climb them, not a big rubble pile. I wanted to ask you, you called the route Crystal Ship. What was the, what was the origin of that name? When we were at base camp, we did uh, enjoy a lot of uh, the doors and obviously the, <laughs> the, the song, The Crystal Ship. Before you slip into unconsciousness, I'd like to have another kiss. In the, the Song of the Doors, he talks about woman, but our woman was this mountain. <laughs> and so it's, it's a story of, of uh, d- desires and illusions and how you... You can imagine something being uh, kind of your fantasy and what brings you all the way across the world and makes you spend so much energy and, you know, risk your, your life to, to, for something that's just crystal, kind of an illusion somehow. So, yeah, Pumarishish was our crystal ship. Thanks to Christophe and Jerome for sharing their stories. You can see photos of some very impressive pitches from the Crystal Ship at the Cutting Edge website. Thanks also to Sierra McGivney for editing support. The Crystal Ship was originally recorded by The Doors in 1966 and released on their debut album in 1967. The clip heard here was part of a remastered collection released in 2006 by Warner Music Group. The Cutting Edge is presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker making top-quality performance tents for 50 years. We get additional support from Gnarly Nutrition, Loa Boots, and Polar Tech. Until our next episode, this is Dougal McDonald wishing you happy climbs.